The best art lingers. I didn't choose the singing of that song, but it's a song that I have played many, many times in my spiritual journey. It somehow expresses the hanging in the balance that, excuse me, that many times we find ourselves in in this journey of faith. The best art lingers. The best art in itself speaks into the soul the way that sermons can't. It frustrates me after two minutes of that to try for 20 minutes to express something of that and know you're going to fail to make that kind of impression. In Northern Ireland, Protestantism, particularly perhaps, we've been misinformed when we are told that it's God's word preached that doesn't return empty. The scripture only says that it's God's word that doesn't return empty. And that word, in its best revelation, was the word made flesh. That didn't return empty. And when the word was made flesh... And tried to communicate in words. He was heavy into storytelling. Rather than a three point Presbyterian sermon. The Fitzroy Passion Play. Was quite a work of art. It was a huge step up from a ten minute nativity. In a family service at Christmas. And I sat there as the preacher, going, "Ah, I wish I could explain it like that. Or I wish I could express it like that. Or I wish we could see that more and more and more. The feedback to the play has been remarkable. Not only in the insights that people got in their minds, but much more than that, and this is perhaps where the sermon can't get you, The number of people that said it was quite emotional. I was moved to tears. A number of people, can I say. Like all the best art, it wasn't particularly the brilliance of the acting, though there was brilliance in the acting. But it was what it spoke, what it said, how it touched. My only regret is that we had only 135 seats and we maybe need to be a little more strategic about it and not wanting to frighten Jesus, Judas, the disciples and others, but maybe we need to do it again with a little bit more intentionality. The passage we came to featured heavily in our play, though not acted out, funnily enough, but played out in a film clip. It's ripe for that, because this is drama. This is an incredible piece of literature. We can only assume that those who know their New Testament theology are right when they realize that the beloved disciple that's obviously not mentioned in the passage that Michael read, unintentional, the treasure thing, we want to assure him, but if the cap fits... 
that John, the beloved disciple, leaning into the chest of Jesus as these scenes around him unfold, that would make sense of the detail. Not only the detail of the facts, but just this mood that is set in these words. There is deep, intimate, relational interaction. Love, betrayal. There's humility going on as Jesus, as I've said before in this service, not the passage that we read that Jonathan did the last time we looked at John's gospel, when Jesus took off the outer garment and in the way a slave would washed the feet of his disciples. There's touching tenderness with John or the beloved disciples' head on Jesus' chest. There's that high drama that Peter always brings to the play. Wanting to save the saviour. Always ahead of the game. And there's the dark tragedy. As in the midst of this, Jesus' spirit goes dark. He was troubled in spirit. And Judas, Judas, that man intrigues me. Peter, what gives with Peter? There's that irrational impetuousness where he's going to go gung-ho at it without thinking too much about it. He wants to get it done. And yet, let's not be too hard on him in this particular place. Because what Jesus does in this feet washing is socially inappropriate and incomprehensible. It's just not what the master does. And you can see when he goes to do it that Peter's going, our social, this is, this is wrong. And in the default position, Peter's actually right. It is wrong. But Peter, you're going to have to trust here. There's something happening here that's smashing all the defaults. There's something here that's going to be alternative. There were strict cultural status boundaries. And Jesus washing the feet of the disciples violated those boundaries. Peter thought it was completely unthinkable. He struggled to grasp it because nobody had grasped it before. It's all right for us. Some of us have gone to Bible college. Some of us have read the books. Some of us have listened to better sermons than this one. Some of us have pondered this for thousands of years. So it makes sense to us. But Jesus himself even said, you will understand this afterwards. Peter's in the middle of it. He just can't. But he's ready for the fight. Ready for whatever. Maybe. Maybe. He was struggling to deal with the love that Jesus had for him. How are we with love? All of us have sort of little psycho things going on that struggles when we are being loved or how we love or how close we get to people. Has the damage of other things that have happened in our lives caused us To struggle, even in a family situation to love, even in a marriage situation to love, in a relational situation to love, in a church situation to love. Are we all open to the vulnerability that love brings? Are we all open to the intimacy of what it is? Are we all open to be open in the way that love needs? Was Peter struggling, the big burly fisherman, we imagine? Was this guy struggling with the love that Jesus was showing him? I don't know, but let me encourage you by this. The Peter before the cross 
and the Peter of the Acts of the Apostles is so radically different that with all our struggles, even with our denials, even with those things we can't come to terms with or won't take on board, even when we're being impet- even when we're trying to save this, all those things that Peter did, all within ourselves, as we gaze into the doorway, do we see a face? As we gaze into Peter's, do we see ourselves? The great encouragement is that Peter was transformed. Transformed to be a great leader of the church. Judas, not so much. What gives with Judas? So many questions. What did Jesus ask him to do? Did Jesus really ask him to hand him over? Or was there something else that Jesus and Judas were about? Because from the midst of this most intimate scenario, Judas betrays him. It would have been different if it had been Nicodemus. It would have been different if it had been Lazarus. It would have been different if it was one. But right here in this room, it's the one who he's just washed the feet of that suddenly gets up and goes and betrays him. What was Judas about? Had he his own agenda? If Peter wanted to save the Savior by laying down his life for him, was Judas coming and saying, look, I don't think you've got the strategy right here. I think we should do it this way. As we gaze into his face, do we see Judas within us all? John's not a big fan of Judas. Chapter 6, he starts off by calling him the one who betrayed Jesus. And in chapter 12, when the perfume was poured over Jesus' head, he has a bit of a go there at the treasure as well. So we'll not get into that one and not ask Michael to read that the next time we do. John has something about Judas. But let's not be overjudgmental. Let's look into Judas and see if we can see ourselves, our agenda. This is the way we should do it. God, that's a stupid way to do it. Jesus, never on a donkey. Jesus, don't be, not, not this piece and let's go for it. Do we see Judas within ourselves? Jesus. Jesus in this passage. The extravagance of his love at the start of the passage. The darkness of his soul when he knows that one of his closest, one of those he chose, is now about to betray him. What is going down here? And this is where the passion play that I started with and the passage that we're on today meets. Because to me, in the passion play, there's many things that linger. But one of the things that most powerfully struck me in the Passion Play were those words that Jesus speaks at the end of this passage. We know them so well. I know them so well. I've preached on them so many times. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. On that night, in the context of the play, in the context of the Jesus that we got to know in the play, in the context of the Lord's Supper, which John doesn't declare it to be here, but we can assume very clearly that it is, in the midst of all those interactions, suddenly when I saw that on the screen, in the context of what was going on, they were words of a chorus to me. Love one another as I have loved you. I sung that from when I was 17 or 18, and they were were nice sentimental words. Oh, 
if we're saved and we're redeemed, we might as well be nice to each other. Let's love one another. But that night, as I watched it in the context of the play, and as I read it now as we open up this passage, we need to see that these are not just nice words for us, how we treat other people. There is something like a prophetic rapier that's cutting through here with power. Of course, we go back to Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then Jesus, in the synoptics, added Leviticus 19.18 to that. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus called these the two greatest commandments. And they're nice little commandments. But again, in this context, he's just washed their feet like a slave would. Then he reclines with them as free people would. And then we hear the words of the sacrament. My body broken for you. My blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There we are at the sacrificial nature of this kind of love. It's a deep love. It's not a carrying the groceries of the person across a street love. It's deeper. It's not, well, I'm not going to hate them because I could. This is a deep, sacrificial, giving of body and blood love. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Feet washing love. Humility love. Giving of life love. Last week I came to this in saying that the interruption of grace is not just a ticket into the kingdom. It just doesn't give us our personal salvation. But it energizes us by the Spirit in our lives and the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit to then have this ability to be grace interrupters. It's the constitution of the life of the kingdom. This is what Jesus brought us into. There seems to be one every week, but this week's Facebook quote that fitted the sermon was, from Leslie Newbegin. Not his Facebook, but his words. One must be chosen and called and sent with the word of salvation to the other. Salvation has in view not the soul conceived as an independent nomad detached from other souls and from the created world, but the human person knit together with other persons in a shared participation in the responsibility for God's created world. Let me give you it again. One must be chosen and called and sent with the word of salvation to the other. 
Salvation has in view not the soul conceived as an independent nomad detached from other souls and from the created world, but the human person knit together with other persons in a shared participation in the responsibility for God's created world. What is Christianity? What are we proclaiming today when we go to church? Here's what we are proclaiming. That we will love one another in the death-giving way that Jesus loved us. This is our proclamation. It's not a badge in our jacket. It's not something on our t-shirt. It's not words that we can preach in a street corner. We are declaring that the life we now live is given up for the lives of others. We belong to each other. Romans chapter 12. If you love me, you will obey my commands. So what is his command to us? That we love one another the way he has loved us. How are we dealing with being loved? Like Peter and Judas. John maybe took it better. How do we take the love of God? Are we open to the love of God? Are we still thinking we need to do something to gain the love of God and we're not sure that we're just right to be loved by God because God knows and you don't know but he does know? Is there something that's stopping the fullness of God's love impacting our souls and how are we dealing with loving others are there obstacles there too lack of trusting that if you love others you're going to become vulnerable you might get hurt you might give up some of the vengeance that you want to have what are the things that are stopping us allowing God to love us what are the things that are stopping us loving others as God has called us to I think, but it wasn't up on the site soon enough for me to listen back to last week. I think last week I mentioned Philomena, didn't I? Maybe I didn't. Because I feel if I had mentioned Philomena, I would have mentioned Valerie McGall because she was the first to tip me off that it was really good on Facebook. So maybe I didn't. If you haven't seen Philomena, you need to go and see Philomena. As an evangelistic film, my word, this little simple Catholic from the south of Ireland takes on English secularism in all its sophistication and just punches it out, basically. It's amazing. Martin Sixsmith, you might have heard. As soon as I heard the name on the film, I got it. Martin Sixsmith, News at 10. I'm not sure it was News at 10. I think it was News at 10. Anyway, um, was it News at 10? BBC, you see. She says News at 10 the whole way through the film, but it was BBC. Now, Sixsmith, his uh, career went down the plug a little bit because he was involved in some political leak or whatever else, finds himself unemployed, takes on this little Irish woman who's looking for her son that was adopted when she was in the Magdalene Laundries, da-da-da-da-da. And there's this wonderful scene in it. Sorry, I'm off on this. I love this so much, and I didn't plan to say this, but it's a great scene. Um, Sixsmith's driving along with this woman who he sort of is patronizing at the start but as it goes on you could the interesting thing is that the film's written in Sixsmith's hand he, he it's his by his book about the story so you're not hearing somebody commentating on this relationship or somebody saying look how Philomena got him you're basically hearing Sixsmith saying look how this woman got me they're driving along in the car and she's aware of a skepticism of all things God so she says to him do you believe in God Martin oh he says God what a big question what a giant concept 
I mean, where do you start with a question like that? I mean, I wouldn't even know how to find the words to think about that. I mean, you just got to... And, he goes, and then he says, what about you, Philomena? Yes! It's as simple as that for her. And it continues to be. And it continues to get under Sixsmith's skin. So we come to this scene near the end. Now, this woman has been treated horribly, as has her son. Both of them have tried to find each other, and the church has not allowed them to find each other. There's all kinds of things that have gone down. And Martin Sixsmith, who is detached from it subjectively, is getting angrier and angrier with the church and with God that he doesn't believe in. And Philomena, who does believe in God, and is actually subjectively the one who's being hurt the most, deals with it completely differently. So they go back to the convent where all this started off. And Sixsmith sees one of the nuns that he knows was involved in the conspiracy. And he bursts through doors and he confronts her. And as he's confronting her with all these other people around him, suddenly Philomena appears and she just looks at the nun and says, I forgive you. Sixsmith goes off on one. How? How? Just as easy as that? And she looks at him and in the power of art that you can't get again in the sermon, you can tell by the look in her face. No, not as easy as that. Not as easy as that. Sixsmith goes off on one about how angry he is and how unjust it all is, and she looks at him and says, Martin, that must be exhausting. And it is, isn't it? When you hold on to all that stuff. It's exhausting. How exhausted is Belfast? How exhausted is Northern Ireland? What do we do with forgiveness? Can we forgive? Some can and some can't and some struggle with it. But is it easy? No, it's not easy. But holding on to it, it's exhausting. Skinos, the night we made the news in Four Corners. There's a lot of talk about forgiveness. Joe Berry, father killed by the Brighton bomber sitting beside her. And none of them can talk about forgiveness in any meaningful way. So after it, when we were trying to get them out to the cars and away through the riot, Harold Good came up and he was asked that question again about forgiveness. And Harold Good said, oh, well, the Dalai Lama was asked about forgiveness. And the Dalai Lama said, oh, forgiveness. Who could ever imagine what that word might mean? And Harold says, you know, there's some truth in that. But we as Christians haven't that luxury because Jesus is very clear about what forgiveness means. Loving one another as he loved us. In the specific, in the family, in the church family, in society, in Northern Ireland. Loving one another as Jesus loved us. Is it easy? Jesus was deeply troubled in spirit. But Jesus, Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot and then said to them, Love one another as I have loved you. By that, the world will know. Let us pray.
Lord, we talk about love a lot. God is love. God so loved the world. We can only love because God first loved us. Love one another. It's a word that can slip off the tongue very easily, and it's a word that can have an incredible amount of shallow meanings that miss the depth of the love that we're hearing about in John chapter 13. Lord, go deep into our souls right now and help us to ask ourselves, what are those things that are blocking your love from penetrating our souls? Maybe the way Judas and Peter had blockages in their souls. And then, Lord, what's blocking us from loving other people? Not just being nice to them, but loving them with the full extent of the love that you showed us and then tell us to love each other the way you loved us. What are those blockages, Lord? By your Spirit, we pray you would do a Peter on us, that you would transform us, that you would help us to be those people who show the world who you are by the depth and cost of the love we share. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.